Welcome to Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Studs Terkel. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me a chance to check in with my people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you dig the mission of Studs and you enjoy these conversations, it would mean a lot to me if you would tell a friend or two about Studs. You can tell three. I wouldn't mind. Just tell them there's a bald fool in Berlin who's a little anxious and he seeks their support. Then send them a link to your favorite episode. It might very well be this episode. Because today's episode of Studs features my conversation with Shana Burns. Shana is a licensed marriage and family therapist and a forensic services manager for the Santa Barbara County Department of Behavioral Wellness. She walks us through the challenges and the opportunities of clinical work with victims of substance abuse, as well as with high-risk sex offenders. Then we pivot into how and why, while remaining committed to working eye-to-eye with clients, she transitioned to leadership roles, doing her part to create a safe but challenging space for empathic engagement in the notoriously vexed American criminal justice system. Indeed, I just might urge you to listen closely to Shana for lessons on empathic engagement. Take notes, my friends. You'll get a lot out of this one. Shana Burns, welcome to Studs. It is such a joy to hear your voice again. It is such a joy to see your face. And I am so grateful and honored that you're willing to join me. You are a licensed therapist. You are also a manager, an administrator, and a leader. How do you describe what you do for work? First and foremost, I too am so enjoying seeing you again, Dan, and thank you so much for having me and really um, acknowledging my work. I have a kind of split life in a way due to the nature of my work. Um, Don't talk much about it, you know, in my off time. So it's a pleasure to be asked about it. So I work currently as the forensics manager for the Department of Behavioral Wellness mental health department, in other words, for the county of Santa Barbara in California. So I'm in the public sector. It's a government position. And I'm also a licensed marriage and family therapist is the name of the licensure in California. So licensed psychotherapist, in other words. So can you walk me along your professional path from being a licensed psychotherapist, a marriage and family therapist, like this more sort of clinical role Mm -hmm. to this more supervisory management leadership role? Sure. So I've been in the field since 1999, and I've been in a leadership role since 2007. Much like many clinicians, I came upon a supervisory administrative position unexpectedly. So I was working for a public sector private agency in San Francisco, called Sharper Future, and they hold most of the contracts with the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. 
serving state parolees who have been incarcerated for sexual offenses. And at the time I was asked to become a site coordinator for the San Francisco clinic. And so as I was continuing to provide services to that population, I was also serving in the role of site coordinator. So I was doing a lot more of the administrative care coordination, you know, uh, triaging referrals, making assignments to the team members of new clients coming in and so forth. So from there, I was doing both clinical work as well as administrative work. And that's, you know, what's led me on the continued path to the position I'm in now. If it's cool with you, I want to hear about the ways in which you approach your clinical work. And I also want to hear about your leadership work. And, you know, you have these dual paths and it sounds like you're doing them together. And I want to talk about how you juggle all that. If you're comfortable with it, I'd like to dive into your work as a clinician. Sure. What's your approach to clinical work and and how has it evolved over your years doing it? Well, let's see. So I started early on in my career um, working with adults that were struggling with chemical dependency, substance abuse um, in an outpatient setting. And also, you know, people with mental health issues. So the combination of the two, which in the field we call co-occurring disorders or dual diagnosis, and most people who suffer from alcoholism and or drug addiction, you know, are also dealing with depression, anxiety, or other types of mental illness, like bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, et cetera. So that combination uh, became a great interest of mine. And, you know, I'm now, I now consider myself specialized in co-occurring disorders and treating them and also uh, in, in treating trauma because most people who abuse substances or who've, you know, struggled with mental health issues and substance abuse have trauma histories to varying degrees. And I think there's much that's unknown by the general public and even in the medical field about the impact on the brain of trauma. So those are my interests. Um, in terms of my clinical approach, uh, there's different kinds of orientations is what they're called in terms of the different schools of thought. And I would say my real passion and orientation of interests and ones that I you know, incorporate into my psychotherapeutic practices are what we call psychodynamic, so stemming from Freud, looking at early life experiences and the impact of early life relationships with primary caregivers. Um, and I would say I'm relationally oriented in terms of really working within the relationship of myself as therapist and role therapist with the client that that relationship in and of itself, actually looking at the relationship and exploring it and using that as the guide can be very healing for clients. They get to have what we call a reparative experience, but I would say those are my basic modalities. And I would say that I draw that parallel or I, you know, I come from that place in working with my staff. So in supporting the team members that um, I'm overseeing, if you will, to be able to provide the services in a way that they have a good, still have good work-life balance, because that's always a challenge in our field. Burnout is a uh, a struggle for many, especially in county work, because we're working with the most underserved, 
the most impaired, highest risk individuals in the community, both juveniles and adults. I, I serve my staff. That's really like how I'm oriented. I feel that I lead through love, mm-hmm. um, just like I do in working with my clients. I think that's critical. Yes. Like they really have to have a a place where they can go and talk about what's really often deeply challenging and disturbing in the type of work that we we do. Shana, I literally have goosebumps because I want to talk about everything you just said. Uh, And I don't know where to start. But Shana, you talked about psychodynamics and relational therapy. Can you describe for me what an ideal relationship is between a clinician and a client? A great question and a very complicated question. Optimally, the client over time, because who would, who's comfortable with this right, right away, but is willing to disclose their conscious feelings and thoughts about the therapist, about me in relationship to me in these roles, so that we can look at how that shows up in other areas of their life. Mm. So how is that a globalized theme in terms of like how they connect or don't connect well or how they withdraw or how they show up fully or, you know, as just parts of themselves and really looking at that with honesty in terms of them trusting me and feeling safe for me to observe for them what I see happening in our relationship and then draw parallels to their own life so that they have greater awareness. And when they're in their own life and in their own relationships, they can make different decisions because they understand their patterns and where they come from. I think I would add to that, that tension or that discomfort, that's to me where the change happens. If someone is willing to sit there and be with it and the two parties are willing to look at it almost like in a detached sort of observational way so that they both can learn from it. To me, that's like the ultimate type of, of therapy in terms of the outcomes being really beneficial. I've, I've, I've experienced it firsthand, both as a client as a, and as a therapist. It sounds like that can very much liberate souls and minds. It also sounds like it puts you in a remarkably vulnerable position. Yes. Can you talk about how you approach the vulnerability of engaging in relational therapy the way you do? I try to get ahead of it in some way by bringing forth to the client that more than likely at some point in time, they'll be disappointed or confused or irritated or have some kind of negative feeling that they might think they shouldn't have towards me. And I remind them this is a real relationship right? And this is a relationship that's contained and has certain boundaries and you won't see me, you know, outside this room or this 50 minute window. So yeah, I would say that I really um, let them know that I honor the relationship and I want to be able to work through anything that comes up, that that will be of benefit to both of us, that I want their feedback, you know, and that I will make mistakes That's the vulnerable piece. I will make mistakes. I will have my own feelings. It will bring up my own 
life stories, that that's just the nature of the process. And that I will only disclose such things to you that will be useful for you to know about me. That makes sense. Oh, it makes perfect sense. And it's completely fascinating. So much so that I have to ask a follow-up question. Do you going into a session sometimes preordain a personal story or narrative that you want to share with this client, something that is very much yours, that makes you vulnerable, that you're willing to put on the table for their betterment. And so you're thinking, well, I'm going to meet with Suzanne Smith today, and I'm going to tell her this story about my life so that we can create dialogue together and so that she can move forward. There are different schools of thought in terms of whether or not it's appropriate and useful to disclose your own stories, your own personal experiences, et cetera. And I think there's a variety of ways to do that in a variety of ways. What do you do? What do you do? <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> I yeah. want to know what you do, um, Shana. It so depends. There are clients who I'm very clear it's not going to benefit them. But I often, I would say in general with clients, use a lot of we language mm. in terms of like just the human condition, our, our human experiences, you know, the struggle we have when we, when, we, when we feel emotions and like, you know, we might react rather than respond to them and that we have choice in how we do that and yet easier said than done. So I normalize by way of sharing that I also know how they feel or I've experienced something similar. Or of course, we go through this. Um, in terms of more specific disclosure, I have worked with um, couples who are in a relationship in which one of the partners is struggling with substance use. And I've had that experience in being the partner of someone who's struggling, struggling with substance use. So I've disclosed certain experiences that I feel help to normalize and help them understand that some of these dynamics that seem so unable to be resolved or distressing are very common because I've worked with many couples and I've also experienced it myself in couplehood. I'm inspired by the language of we and how you deploy that for the betterment of the relationship. You brought up substance abuse I mean, it's so vexed, isn't it, Shana? Addiction is such a multidisciplinary problem. Yeah. It's so complicated. Yeah. What are the keys to creating a successful therapeutic relationship with victims of substance abuse? I like how you put that, victims of substance abuse. I agree with that. Thanks. Yeah, these are people who are victims of trauma, that's, you know, that's how I see, see them. That's the lens through which I view individuals who are struggling with use of alcohol and or drugs or, and, and that comes in all kinds of other flavors too. We know food, um, internet, social media, um, sex, shopping, there's lots of flavors and forms in which addictive or compulsive patterns of behavior emerge and can be you know, more or less an interference in one's functioning and their relationships and just day-to-day -day life. By the time these clients get to you, I would imagine many of them feel like they've tried everything. Many of them 
have failed to get clean. Many of them have seen their worlds fall apart or have very real fears that their worlds just might fall apart at any moment. And they're coming to you in many cases out of what I'm going to call something like a desperate need. In light of all of that, and in light of your willingness to be vulnerable with and for them, what are the keys to a successful therapeutic relationship with a victim of substance abuse? I would say empathy and direct communication, direct feedback. One very common technique is motivational interviewing, which sounds very generic. You're very empathically and sometimes using humor is the way I, I approach it at times, addressing their distortions. There's what we call thinking errors or discrepancies and saying, well, but that doesn't really add up. And how are you going to make decisions that are going to be in your best interest? Really calling them to task. But someone really has to be wanting to change generally in order to change. Not all of your clients are totally voluntary, right? Not all of them are committed to change. No. Like that's the one thing we all know. We're like every, like every fucking like armchair psychologist, myself included, like we'll say like, you know, you got to want to change before you can. You got to want to quit before you can. Um, But you don't have the luxury of working with people necessarily who want to change or want to quit. So like, can you talk about the vexed nature of that whole enterprise? (laughs) Oh, it so depends on what we call where they are in their stage of change. So we're essentially just reflecting back to them where we see them being in terms of like the negative consequences that have resulted from their use or their behaviors or both, you know, and and asking them to speak to like how they want their life to be different. And if they don't want their life to be different, we just reflect just that like, okay, so you'll, you know, my guess is that you'll end up back in jail you know, and if I hear that's what you're wanting, I'm not sure what my role would be other than to tell you what I think. And you can take that or leave that. Now, people can want to change. That's any of us, right? Or, you know, we think we want to change, but changing is a whole other story. I think we can all relate to that. Yeah, we, we can. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can. Um, uh, yes, I, I surely can. So, I have sort of a more general question that I'm just reminded of when I'm listening to you. Shayna, you are so verbally intelligent (laughs) and so empathic and so loving. I want to talk about that first part. You have this top-notch verbal acumen and a lot of your clients don't. That's right. Knowing that you're aware of that. Thank you, by the way. How do you correct for that or negotiate that? when you're having effectively talk therapy with your clients? I meet them where they are. I, I love people and I can connect with lots of walks of life. I've chosen to live in places with diverse populations, people with very different life experiences than I, and I've worked with a really wide variety of clients for that reason and wanting to understand people's different life experiences. And I can 
kind of match their language in a way that's still my own, but to join them is the way I describe it, to be with them in a really present and loving way. But I also hold people accountable. So I have a whole sort of side of my personality that I bring to the work. And I think that's what has led me to working with tougher clients who are not necessarily ready to change, who don't trust the system, who don't trust a white woman for all kinds of right reasons. And I have to meet them with that and, 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 and have awareness of that and be able to speak to that, to build that, that trust and that rapport so that people can feel safe to really talk about what ails them and what's in the way of them changing. Shannon, you definitely have developed a resume in working with tougher clients. Among those are sex offenders. Yeah. Would you describe the challenges of rehabilitating sex offenders? So just to clarify, I'm not currently working with that population. I worked with sexual offenders, federal probationers, state parolees, and county probationers, so very wide spectrum of types of sexual offenses. And and that was in the Bay Area for just under eight years. And I, like I mentioned, served in both an administrative role as well as a clinical role. So I facilitated groups with what were deemed high-risk sex offenders, so state parolees. Most of those folks had violent criminal histories, and then they'd have that sex offense in the mix. So they weren't pedophilic predators. In other words, they weren't those who had interest in children. That's actually much more rare. So in terms of rehabilitation, the majority of those who've committed sexual offenses have perceived intimacy with a stepchild, have um, made decisions impulsively that landed them in the criminal justice system, such as urinating in public or masturbating in public. There are definite challenges in treating that population because there's so much shame and denial. So it takes a very long time with many to get them even to admit to what they did. And then working with them to modify their behaviors, their thinking, you know, things that led them to making those decisions so as to prevent recidivism. The research, though, is really good for people who finish a sex offender treatment program, which is typically like two and a half to three years. Generally, their recidivism rates are very low and the general population doesn't really know that or can't probably imagine that. But most sexual offenders are released to the community. So really, the client is the community to keep the, you know, the community safe and working with that individual to help them reintegrate and not reoffend. Forgive me if this is too personal and you don't have to answer it if you don't want to, but I can imagine a world where despite your best efforts to not judge sex offenders and this, and, and despite your efforts to remain as empathic as you can, like part of that work must have something to do with you negotiating your own feelings about the behaviors that some of these clients have exhibited. Absolutely. How do you, how do you do that? Going back to your question about self-disclosure in the role of therapist, there are some useful ways in which you can disclose your actual feelings towards that individual based on 
having read their legal history before you meet them or what is emerging in the therapy, you know, their own often dismissive or minimizing responses to when like we would address the actual crime that occurred. I don't know how else to say it other than we can empathize with the fact that most of them have experienced neglect, physical abuse. That's actually much more common than sexual abuse, which is a, is a bit of a myth. Most sexual offenders are what I call relationally disturbed. So they have had primary caregiver relationships that were either negligent and or physically abusive, just in simple terms. So these are people too with significant trauma. They've acted from that place and they don't have awareness about it oftentimes. So there's there's an empathy that I carry. That's why I was able to do the work. I think any, everyone deserves healing, no matter who you are. I don't see people as good or bad. That terminology I never use. It yes. really irks me when it's used by others. Yes. So these are people who deserve healing. That's my perspective. But absolutely, I would confront their denial, their minimization of what of what they had done, and really work to help them to understand the impact that it had on the victim. That's the work. Hmm. They wouldn't like me much of the time. You know, I would be pushing their their boundaries, you know, and their limits of comfort and discomfort. And you have to be able to be in that discomfort with them and be able to really unpack some very gnarly sexual offense crimes. Yeah. You know, in which they raped someone or they've, you know, sexually molested their own child. So being able to be in that discomfort with them is really critical to helping them. So I have to bear that. I mean, that was a choice. Obviously, I chose to work with that population. Most therapists have no interest in working with that population, which is understandable. And oftentimes when I was doing that work, I'd be at a party and someone would ask me what I did for a living and I would pause because I <laughs> yeah. I oftentimes felt like I was kind of injecting people with venom. It was very uncomfortable for most people to hear about it. Right. But I also felt like kind of almost like a social justice drive to educate people. Was that the drive? Yeah, partly. But, I mean, is that the core of it? Like your desperate desire for social justice was the primary motivating force to empower you to work with sex offenders. My belief system, my core values, I guess, around feeling that my calling, my purpose is to serve people regardless of what they've done to others. Anyone who's going to remain alive and remain out of a custody setting really needs that support so that hopefully they don't harm another person. So I feel responsible in that role. Like that, that was a role that I chose to subsume. And I still do in a way um, in my current position in terms of really being able to hold space for the team members that serve the clients who are very in danger of hurting themselves or others. Yeah. And to take on only a certain amount of responsibility, right? Because we really, we can't. We can't fix everyone or cure everyone, that's for sure. How do you work with populations like these and remain healthy yourself? That's the million-dollar question. <laughs> um, 
you know, and I'm of course in a role to model self-care and good work-life balance. And I'm, I do so by demonstrating the need to take vacation and approving people's, you know, my staff's vacation requests and promoting them to take time off when they seem to be depleted or burnt out and really like encouraging and inviting them to ask for help and to talk about the difficulty of the work. I think that that is critical. I can't help but wondering if your transition into more administrative leadership managerial roles has something to do with the um, overwhelming nature of that work. Uh, can you, first of all, tell me how wrong I am because I, I love being wrong. No. <laughs> um, no. And then talk to me about how you began to transition from a full-time clinical role to more of an administrative or supervisory role. Dan, you've always been so intuitive. You've always just seen right right into me. So I appreciate that question because it's it's right on in that unbeknownst to me consciously, I think at the time when I transitioned into the split track, so to speak, of clinical and administrative work. Actually, I took a, a summer off when I was doing sex offender treatment because it was very invasive. Yeah. I mean, they they violate people's boundaries, right? So psychically, there was a kind of invasiveness for me when I wasn't at work, thinking about it, dreaming about it. Um, you know, it brings up a lot of one's own material. And that was the case for my colleagues. We had actually a process group every week where we would talk about the work and what we call counter-transference. So that's also a Freudian term from psychodynamic theory um, that the therapist is experiencing with their own life history, their own material, their own issues. Their own stuff is coming up and we have to keep that in check. I definitely think, I think it would be untrue if I were to think that the administrative leadership part of my role, which is my, which is really primary now, didn't come from wanting some separation, some space from the clinical work. However, over the years, I, for instance, was the program director for a dual diagnosis residential treatment program in Berkeley, California in a five-story Victorian house where I was on call and, you know, called in the middle of the night. I was going out there on the weekends at times, you know, I was on site where the clients were being served and I was inevitably interacting with them and providing treatment as well and facilitating conflict resolution meetings. Uh, I currently work in a, a crisis clinic essentially where we have we have a few very volatile, threatening, aggressive clients who will be very difficult to de-escalate. And I'm you know, very comfortable in those crisis situations. Anytime I hear someone's voice raised, I'm, I'm out there. I have at times had to call the police, but generally we're able to contain them and move them along, you know, and then help them when they're less heated. But under no circumstances, just because we know they're mentally ill and, you know, have emotional dysregulation issues. Are we going to allow abusive behavior? 
So yeah, so I'm still doing kind of the clinical work by nature of being in the environment and supporting the staff that do the direct service work. Um, I oversee programs at the juvenile hall, as well as this boys camp we have in Santa Barbara County for lower level juvenile offenders. And most of those youth are gang involved. They've been shot or they've been stabbed. They have very significant trauma histories as well. So I'm hearing that material, but through the staff and then supporting them to support the client. So I'm very interested in that multi-level kind of approach. And I think of like the system, I'm much more systems oriented than a lot of people that just want to do like the clinical work. I have staff who are amazing and I try to, you know, encourage them to, to step into a leadership role. They're like, no, I'm good. I want to do the clinical work. So before we get to your leadership and supervisory roles, I have this thought that's been ringing through my head and I didn't quite recognize what it was until now. And so I have to ask about it and then I promise we can move on. I wonder how you deal with anger because despite my desire to be empathic and my willingness to be vulnerable and what I would like to say is my deep love for all of my fellow travelers. If I were surrounded by rapists, child molesters, violent criminals, despite myself, I would find myself angry with them angry at them, or at the very least, violently angry about the circumstances that made them necessary in the world. Right? They are the byproducts of systems. Yep. And at the very least, I would be terribly angry at those systems. What's your relationship to anger as it relates to that constellation of problems? Brilliant question. I am, I think at the core, motivated by that. My disdain for, you know, systemic racism, that is the drive for being in the role that I'm in. I mean, it must have been such a um, complicated transition for you. So why should it be easy for me, right, to try to put words around how and why you pivoted from exclusively clinical work to something like 90, 95% leadership and supervisory work. And I guess I kind of get the sense that to some degree, you found yourself to be emotionally and spiritually overwhelmed or overworked by the need to support these clients and create boundaries around yourself and to promote your own health and wellness, but also... More than anything, I want you to talk about how and why you pivoted from clinical work to more administrative, more leadership, more supervisory work. In being given the you know offered the opportunity to step into that role in two thousand seven, you know unexpectedly, I was very able, very much able seamlessly to do so because I have a certain skill set with organizational tasks and attention to detail, writing, administrating, if you will, and, and care coordinating that um, I really wanted to maximize on. And I was given that opportunity. 
I strive to have my staff feel cared for and genuinely supported and appreciated and valued and really getting into the weeds with them. I I think that's really crucial to establishing like a kind of shoulder to shoulder working relationship. So they don't feel that you're one-upping them, even though you're in the role of their boss or supervisor or manager, you know, as a fine balancing act. Yeah. It seems like you have to balance a lot of hats, like, right. You administrate, you direct, you supervise, you seem to be the communicator in chief, right? You sort of act as a liaison between the Santa Barbara County hospitals, the probation program, Mm -hmm. this juvenile justice and mental health wing of it all. So does it feel like you're wearing one big hat, like one kind of comprehensive role or are you, does it feel more like you're juggling a bunch of different roles? kind of a bit of both if that's possible <laughs> you know just in terms of like my my own identity as a therapist as a helper as a change agent as a person like who really wants to be a healer um, and really practice the healing arts but I'm very much interested in policy and structured systems and workflow and process improvement you know really like the system in terms of beginning, middle, and end with how someone is properly served and each person's role in that system of care. I'm a problem solver. Like I have a bigger vision of a systemic kind of improvement that enhances the quality of care. So kind of multi-level is the is the hat. I would think of it as like a hat closet and I have a large hat and like a few other smaller hats. <laughs> um, or, or I would say like there's jewelry I wear with that hat. You know, so there's, (laughs) I I also love clothing. That's the other side of my, in my next life, uh, career vision or passion. That's another uh, conversation. Wait, no, no, it's not. You probably know that I interviewed your sister for this podcast. What you probably don't know is I asked her what question she would have for you. And she asked, and I wonder if you just inadvertently answered her question. She asked, what would you do if you weren't doing this? Wow. Would you would you do something in fashion? Is that your answer? Yes, I would have a vintage store and um, vintage trade. Um, and just the idea of nostalgia and objects and, you know, creating space. So... All of those things combined somehow, I would work in like the design world and have a shop. Shayna, can I tell you what she hypothesized? Yes. Pole dancer. She said pole dancer. And I'm not even joking, uh, but I think she was. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I think she was. I think she was joking. That is awesome. She was joking, right? No. <laughs> I always said I want, I always said I wanted to be a stripper. She knows that. I have many a part, Stan Lazar, you know that too. So she was half joking. Yeah, she's half joking. <laughs> Y'all are the best. I'm crazy about all ladies' burns. All of the burns women, We've 10 out of 10. always felt that love from you. Okay, so that happened. <laughs> I like the idea of you were talking about like a multi-tiered hat mm-hmm. uh, and then jewelry was involved. <laughs> and so you have to communicate through these very complicated, convoluted, bureaucratic channels. In fact, probably a couple of different bureaucratic channels. You also have to communicate with clients. 
I want to hear about that. But before I, I get to that, like you are a forensic service manager. What is that job? So I am responsible for overseeing all of the programs in our department that serve both youth ages 13 to 17 and adults 18 and older that are criminal justice involved, which means they are pending a conviction after being charged you know, and arrested, or they're on probation already, they've served their time, um, or they're in the juvenile hall, or they're in what we call our Los Prietos Boys Camp, which is a lower level correctional facility on an incredibly beautiful woodsy property. There's another program too, I didn't mention, Adult Probation AB 109, which is Assembly Bill 109, which has allowed certain state parolees based on their criminal history to be realigned to county probation upon release from state prison. So there's the adult population and the youth population. I also oversee a program that serves individuals that have been deemed incompetent to stand trial, meaning their current mental health impairments prevent them from being able to understand the legal proceedings that they're facing. And so our staff, my team, is tasked with the legal statute of requiring them to quote unquote restore someone to competency. So what that really technically looks like is that person is in the psych hospital from the jail. They go to the hospital to be restored And sometimes they're involuntarily medicated if they're unwilling, um, or they voluntarily take medications until which time hopefully they stabilize and can begin to mentally comprehend the legal situation that they're facing. Some people restore and some people don't. So my team is regularly going back to court hearings, working with the the public defender, with the DA to try to um, release them from that status because oftentimes they end up going out to state hospitals rather than remaining in the community to be stabilized. So that's just the general overview of my role. How many people are on your team as it pertains to that facet of your work? Essentially, there's three teams that I, three programs, if you will, and three teams that I manage. Right. And approximately 30 staff. How does the day start as a forensic services manager? Each day is very different. There's never a dull moment. I'll bet. You show, you show up at what time? Monday morning, I run the Justice Alliance team meeting from 8.30 to 10 a.m. Um, then the team members are all present and we discuss clients in terms of their status in the hospital, in our crisis residential treatment programs. Um, and those who are in what we call board and care facilities or room and board, depending on their level of severity with their mental health issues and need. Um, so we discuss the cases and, you know, ensuring that everyone on the team. So there's a caseworker on the team, for instance, practitioner, psychologist, doctor, nurse, so that all disciplines are you know, providing a specific type of service to that client coordinated so that no one is falling through the cracks. And then from there, I'm usually in meetings much of the day. I have individual meetings with staff and I have uh, mandatory administrative meetings that I attend monthly and weekly. So it really depends on the day. 
Um, but I'm on different committees within the department. I'm on like the compliance committee. I'm on the grievance committee where clients as what are called Medi-Cal beneficiaries, they have Medi-Cal insurance in the state of California. They can file grievances if they have issues with the services they're receiving. Uh, we have our manager's team meeting every week where we talk about you know, various state mandates. Wait, so you have to deal with all of that stuff too, oh, yeah. right? So you have to deal with these clients who have a whole host of problems. You have to deal with therapists who also, I can only assume, given their clientele, have a whole host of problems. And then you have to deal with the California medical services. Right, the state mandates, um, the documentation requirements, like all of our staff have to be re-credentialed based on all of these different state required standards. It's There's a lot of formality and paperwork and oversight of compliance and productivity expectations of staff that I'm monitoring, coaching the staff to meet those expectations. And then, you know, of course, here and there, there are personnel issues. So I'm working with HR to resolve those. You know, there luckily has not been the need to terminate staff anytime recently. You know, there's issues amongst staff, right, that I am kind of behind the scenes helping them to navigate or mediating, depending on the situation. So it's, it's multifaceted and it's constant. I mean, I'm getting about 10 to 30 emails per hour on average. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Well, so you went from an environment where you would have like this deep empathic engagement with one client at a time or small groups these very sort of eye-to-eye, face-to-face encounters to this enormous bureaucratic structure and unlimited emails. Yep. Yes. There's a lot of like consulting and talking with clinical staff and then also our partners. So we are implementing a new grant program in which I'm regularly talking with public defenders about certain individuals who may or may not meet criteria for this new program to try to divert people from the criminal justice system. There's a huge initiative department-wide, or sorry, county-wide, which is very exciting in our county. It's very progressive. Really, the goal is to redirect folks with mental illness from the jail setting because we know the criminalization of mental illness is a is a profound widespread issue so we have different grant programs in which we're identifying individuals who are appropriate to be diverted from a state hospital i am overwhelmed just hearing about this just like the cursory explanation of what it is that you do i find myself feeling like i'm in you know, sort of like a wave pool. Yeah, it's how it feels day to day. It's a good way to describe it. Although I love wave pools. <laughs> it seems like there are various established stakeholders who are vying for your attention all day long. It's a lot of problem solving, you know, and supporting staff and feeling confident to make their own decisions. 
empowering them. You seem to interface with really complex systems. Obviously, you've come to understand those systems expertly, and you've found creative ways to navigate and negotiate these systems. And these are systems adjacent to and very much um, enmeshed with a broader criminal justice system, which I'm sure you and I share some real concerns with and criticisms of. Oh, yeah. And in light of all that, I'm wondering if you could give me a sense of what it feels like when things are going well. Like, what is what is a great day or a great week feel like? To get people's goals al- aligned, to really be able to, to be able to, on a macro level, help them identify the shared goal we have so that we're aiming in the same direction rather than it being this kind of us versus them dynamic that often unfolds is one of the greatest challenges. So getting everyone on the same page, no easy feat. Yeah, a little bit of herding cats. Oh yeah. So in full disclosure, you're talking to a dude who for some time has considered transitioning from a classroom role to a more managerial administrative role. And I will tell you that every time that I have left my classroom to sort of dip my toe into the waters of administration, bureaucracy, and systems, I have pulled my toe out of that water and ran back to my classroom as quickly as possible. I say that to say this, I really respect that you took this courageous transition from clinical work to dive into this wave pool of bureaucracy and and systems. And politics. Let's not forget that. And politics. I stared that right in the face. I, I stared back. But you... You went for it. Do you regret it ever? How much would you just rather be working face-to-face with clients? Thank you. I don't regret any of it. And I actually, I feel very passionate about leadership development and that personal process of, of really continuing to step into a leadership role and feel comfortable in that role with delegating and directing and holding people accountable while also supporting them and caring for them and valuing them and motivating them. So I definitely think it's where, where I'm supposed to be. So the, the improvement drive that I have is pretty strong and it keeps me in the work. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, seems it keeps like me it. in the work. And I, I always said I'm a hope junkie. So even like the most dysfunctional uh, systems, like I can, I can sort of see where there could be the removal of that barrier, whatever it is. Yes. I'll bet you're great at it. Yeah. I'll bet you just own it. And the people around you, they love you. They respect you. They care about you. And they're grateful for you. I'll bet talk around town is that Shana Burns has this leadership thing figured out. <laughs> The, all of that sort of interfaces with problems so many of us have with authority, probably problems that all of us have with authority. 
Indeed. Yeah. And you seem to have authority over a number of different programs. Do you see yourself as authoritative? Is that part of your self-image? You have a lot of responsibility. What's your relationship like with authority? (laughs) I try very hard not to be experienced as authoritative. That's something that may be to a fault. I have tried not to be. In the past, early on in my career as a leader, I received some difficult feedback where people felt I was unapproachable or um, that I was one-upping them, you know, in different ways they would feel micromanaged. So I am aware of ways in which I've been experienced. I think I've moved to a very different, more integrated place with like who I am in the role, like bringing my own personality, my own quirky, silly kind of self-deprecating strategies yeah. to the to the job. I mean, I actually explicitly will tell them, I want this to be a very atypical work environment for you, atypical work experience where you can actually like really fully show up as yourself. That is what I want for everyone here. I want them to be, I want you to be like as satisfied in yourself and in alignment at work as you are in your own personal life. Yeah. That would be to me the higher vision, right? Yeah. So yeah, that's that's the place I come from. But in terms of my relationship to authority, I had to do a whole lot of work with that. When I um, served sexual offenders, that was one of the themes, back to the word counter-transference, that would emerge for the clinicians I worked with and myself in working with folks who were distrusting of the system, distrusting of people in authority, and inevitably as therapists, contracted by state parole to provide mandated treatment to them, we were an arm of the system. So we had to both own that, right? We can't pretend that's not true. That's true. Right. And especially for them. But how do we provide a different kind of experience? How do we become a person that they trust and knows has their best interests at heart? Yes. Also working with parole partners and probation, very different kind of paramilitary, arguably, system, uh, very different than, you know, clinical teamwork. We were faced with our own authority issues, for sure. I mean, we couldn't, Hmm. we couldn't deny those. I think that's important for any therapist because we are in an authority role by nature of the therapist-client relationship. So it goes back to sort of what I explained at the beginning about trying to meet people where they are and take a humble, vulnerable, real person kind of approach to establishing the boundaries and parameters. I love it. So since you brought us back to the beginning, let's begin to drive this train into the station here. Humble, vulnerable, hope junkie, aspiring pole dancer, we know that, and fashionista, also a student of literature back in the day. And you love stories. I love stories. We love stories. Can you tell me the story of one professional triumph and one professional failure and give me the failure first so we can end on a note of triumph? I am not a fan of the word failure. I mean, I want to give my parents kudos for that. Even when I feel at my worst or as though I'm not capable of 
doing some part of my job very well, I don't experience myself as a failure. I think there's always opportunity in misses, in things going in a different direction than than anticipated or hoped for. You know what I love about it? <laughs> One Courtney Burns evaded this prompt very similarly and likewise poetically. So in my solidarity with the Burns sisters, I'm going to let that be your non-failure. There's been no failure. There might've been a couple of mess ups, but it's all a learning experience. All right, Shanene, one more thing I, I need to ask of you. Can you recommend a guest or a profession, someone you might want to hear from or a profession you might want to learn more about? I would recommend that you consider interviewing a chief of police where there has been brutality against people of color. Yeah, it's pretty relevant right now. You know, as someone who works in the public sector with other law enforcement partners, I think there's much to be learned from talking with someone who's moved up in the ranks and whom really comes from a place of serving the community and who understands that police have had to endure traumas that these systems aren't set up to address to prevent them from abusing their power. I will try, I should say, as you know, uh, leaders in law enforcement are notoriously tight-lipped. Put it this way, if you uh, if you know anyone... I do. Send them my way if they might be interested. Shana, thank you so much for being open, not just to talking with me, but being open while talking with me. I I think I knew... I missed you a great deal, but just being able to hear your voice for this time has um, impressed upon me how much I miss you. And I am so grateful and so honored to have been able to learn from you and learn about you and get a better sense of your work and how you interface with it. It's heartening to me to know that you remain a beacon of hope, a hope junkie. <laughs> and I'm going to try to draw some inspiration from that and become more of a hope junkie myself. Shana, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Dan. And the feelings could not be more mutual. Miss you greatly. Thank you for this opportunity and for honoring the work that I do. It means very much to me. And that's my friend Shana. She's the best, am I right? I told you empathic engagement. Subscribe, leave a comment and a review, and pretty please, with sugar on top. Share studs with your people. <laughs>